0: The International Committee for the Red Cross Red Crescent, otherwise known as the ICRC, is a singularly unique international organization. It was founded over 150 years ago to care for soldiers wounded in battle, and it has evolved substantially since then, including helping to shape what is known today as international humanitarian law, that is, the laws of war. This includes the Geneva Conventions, in which the ICRC is specifically named. Today, the ICRC works in conflict zones around the world, providing on-the-ground medical relief and other services to protect the rights and welfare of civilians and combatants in conflict. It also conducts what my guest today, Hugo Slim, calls humanitarian diplomacy at the United Nations and in capitals around the world. Hugo Slim is the policy director for the ICRC, and we discuss what exactly Policies the ICRC seeks to advance, and we have a broader conversation about the work of the ICRC around the world and the truly distinct role it plays in international affairs, both throughout history and today. Now, the ICRC is an organization that probably everyone listening to this podcast will have heard of. It should not be confused with national Red Cross societies like the American Red Cross or the Syrian Red Crescent. They are distinct entities, though they are related for reasons that Hugo Slim explains. As always, please go to com to check out our archives. I should have a steady stream of content uh, towards the end of the year and over the holidays. If you're listening to this contemporaneously, happy holidays to you. If you are looking forward to any particular story or if there is someone you want me to interview or a topic you want me to cover in the new year, please do send me an email. I do love hearing from you. I love hearing your suggestions. It does actually help me uh, shape my editorial calendar, just knowing what is interesting to you. After all, I do this podcast for you, the listener. I I value the relationship that we have, so I I really do love hearing from you. So please uh, feel free to reach out Any time you can also hit me up on twitter at mark l goldberg all right now here is my conversation with dr hugo slim of the international committee for the red cross red crescent looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health tune into global health matters the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, the International Committee of the Red Cross, um, for a start, has a very long role in international affairs. We we started engaging internationally, and if you like, in humanitarian diplomacy, as we call it, way back in um, the 1860s, when Henri Dunant found himself in the middle of a battlefield and realized that um, wounded people should be cared for and protected, and that the best way to do that was to set up a neutral um, humanitarian organization, and not just to stop there, but actually to create international law to protect wounded people in battle. So the moment the ICRC began to engage um, internationally to encourage states to make um, a law, the first Geneva Conventions um, back in the 1860s, we began effectively to have a role in international affairs, which is a humanitarian role that spans um, three areas, really. It spans operations. So just as he started operations working with sick, wounded, um, dying people on a battlefield, we still work to protect and assist people in the mud and blood of armed conflict every day. Um, We also work, therefore, on the law, and we work um, tirelessly to encourage states and other um, warring parties to respect the Geneva Conventions and we also engage in policy work to try and encourage and shape the way um, states and other warring parties pursue certain policies of war. So that's how we engage, and we've been doing that for 150 something years, and that's what we do today.
0: And, and it's worth pointing out that that first uh, Geneva Convention covered just you know what to do with wounded uh, soldiers, but in subsequent Geneva Conventions, you know, dealt more broadly with what to do about non-combatants and civilians caught up in, in yeah. conflict. And uh, I think people are would be interested to know that the ICRC, you know, is specifically written into the Geneva Conventions and is given a, a very defined role in that in that regard right
1: we are and we're given a very unique role in international affairs if you like because we are not an intergovernmental organization we are a private um swiss humanitarian organization which is recognized and mandated by states in the geneva conventions and and what does
0: it say like what what do the geneva conventions um say about the role of the icrc today
1: well, it says um, when it's talking about the you know, provision of um, protection and assistance to people in war, it makes quite clear and it says that um, an, a neutral and impartial humanitarian organization such as the International Committee of the Red Cross um, may engage, etc., and and um, work for um, the protection and assistance of people in armed conflict. And we also have a global movement, as you know. So we have the International Committee there the Red Cross, which is the original part of the Red Cross, Red Crescent organization. But very soon after we were founded, our founder, Henri Dunant, went around the world and encouraged every country to set up a national society. So we have um, 190 national societies, Red Cross and Red Crescent societies um, around the world. And um, we have the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies based in Geneva, which is the umbrella group for those. And we have the statutes of our movement, which um, are also recognized by states and which, you know, elaborate our mandate in more detail about how we can um, all work together.
0: And and what I find so interesting and, and so unique about the ICRC, uh, among many things, is you know, the, the fact that its sort of role is enshrined in like universally adopted international law and the Geneva Conventions gives it a sort of unique access and gives your organization the ability to, for example, you know, work with the Colombian government to allow unfettered access to, you know, like FARC or work in, work in, in you know, perhaps with like, you know, the Afghan government to have access to like the, the Taliban in a more modern situation.
1: Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. And we we are able to do that not just because of law, but because of our principles. Um, we have fundamental principles recognized by states, um, which is how we work. And those are humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and independence. And it's because we absolutely commit to neutrality and independence and impartiality that we gain the confidence of all parties in our conflict, or we can, if things are going well, to move across the lines of conflict and to meet and work with all warring parties. Can you give just a a modern example
0: of how that is manifest in conflicts today?
1: Yes, I can give you one actually from my own experience in the last um, few months. I mean, a few months ago, I was in South Sudan looking at how we work in that particular conflict. And I went up to an opposition area. So I, if you like, crossed over the line of conflict and um, entered to, into opposition area and what visited our hospital there. And in that hospital, there were a, a number of wounded people who were being treated um, and gradually recovering from wounds they'd received in an attack in, in another area. And we'd evacuated them to that hospital, um, it got better, thankfully, thanks to our surgeons and the um, nurses and everybody in that hospital, and. Then we put them in a plane and I went back with them and we flew back across the line of conflict and took them back to their home area in areas still controlled by the government. So that's just a small example of how we work. Now, when we do that, we are doing it in very close and transparent contact between both those parties in that particular case. So we explain to both government and opposition what we are doing, where we are, when we will be traveling, and um, we, we negotiate our access at all times.
0: And, and can you help explain, like, how does that differ from how a more traditional NGO or humanitarian organization, you know, that does great work around the world, like MSF, Ministers on Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, how, like, how, because of your unique status, is what you do any way sort of different from what, say, MSF would do in that situation?
1: Well, MSF often are working in, in areas that we are too. I mean, they, they are very much a frontline humanitarian organization as well. So they can achieve, um, access very often in, in the way we can. Um, but we, we probably do have that facility to be able to move very often very fluidly across the lines of conflict in a way that a lot of organizations will not be able to and that's because of our principles that's because of the law that's because we are as you said at the beginning of this interview um, a very well-known and accepted part of international relations and international um, states understanding of international relations but it's also because we as a core part of our independence is to have a totally independence logistical um setup so we have our own planes we have our own trucks we control our own supply lines and we we depend on no one other than ourselves so in a sense we we have that extraordinary freedom of movement too well,
0: what, what kind of visas do you use if you were flying say to south sudan do you guys is there like a unique icrc visa
1: well, it depends. If you're the head of delegation, you you will um, have a diplomatic, um,
0: yeah. So you'll visa. still have I, to go through like the bureaucratic process of applying for a visa too. You know, yes, you in, do. In if Cuba, you're ordinary okay. ICRC
1: staff, you do. Okay. Um, but, you know, usually there are obvious exceptions, but usually um, states will will recognize us and facilitate our visas. Not always. Um, I'm in the US today, but I, I arrived on a diplomatic visa as well. So when we are Doing um, diplomatic work in a country like the, like the U.S., um, they will often prefer that we come in on a diplomatic visa,
0: which again is is distinct from, say, something that like uh, a policy officer at Oxfam would have. I imagine. Yeah, I should think so. So so let's let's talk uh, about. Um, how it is that you try to influence diplomacy on an international and and perhaps even sometimes even a, a local level? Like, what is uh, humanitarian diplomacy, and how do you carry it out?
1: Well, humanitarian diplomacy is is in a sense simply diplomacy working at all levels of the international system um, with states and other authorities, but we do diplomacy. Um, not with a partisan intent in the interest of one state or our own organization. We do diplomacy in the interests of the victims of armed conflict and in the interests of the mission of the ICRC to um, protect and assist those victims of armed conflict. So that's why we call it humanitarian diplomacy. It shares almost all the characteristics of normal diplomacy. Um, We engage, you know, with political power all the time, either government power or um, um, armed group power. So we are engaging diplomatically with power. And I often describe it as a, a boots and suits diplomacy. So we're often doing humanitarian diplomacy in boots, at checkpoints, in the mud and blood of war. And then there are people like me doing diplomacy in suits in the UN in New York. So our diplomacy spans that whole spectrum between um, the worst places of the world where people are suffering. And in a sense, some of the richest, um, most comfortable corridors of power, whether that's in a state capital, or in a multilateral um, diplomatic setting. So we, we have a diplomatic network across 80 countries. Um, and we work across that spectrum at all times.
0: So, so can you let me know, maybe in, in a little more detail, like, Like how does your sort of quote suit diplomacy manifests itself? Like Mm -hmm. I'm reaching you in New York right now. Presumably you had meetings at the United Nations. Like Mm -hmm. what were your meetings uh, about and what were you trying to advance?
1: Well, today I wasn't being in, in very diplomatic mode because we were really doing a, an end of year um, series of meetings in our delegation to understand what mm-hmm. we've achieved this year, what we need to focus on on next year, how we're working with the UNGA, with the UN Security Council. So what did you um, achieve this year, for example? In in well, the Well, we We've done um we've done what we always do, which means that we have um engaged um very purposefully in, in big UN um, events like the UN General Assembly High-Level Week, where our president, who is our chief diplomat, comes and spends the high-level week in September um, meeting as many heads of states, foreign ministers as he can. So we, New York has to deliver a, a good General Assembly for the ICRC. All our team in New York has spent, you know, many weeks and hours and months in the committees of the un monitoring um, talking to states advising them about um, international humanitarian law as they make resolutions as they reach agreements Um, we observe as a permanent observer to the united nations we observe the security council but we've also engaged in big diplomatic processes like the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. We've been engaged in that process for many years, and that process um, came to fruition this year with 120 states um, signing that treaty. And we've been involved in that for many years. And we're winning also the, acti-
0: the Nobel Peace Prize. We're, we're
1: speaking a couple days after they just received their Nobel That's Peace right. Prize. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So we were obviously you know, very much in that process advising.
0: Well, well can, of, I, can I actually just it. stop you there? Because that, you know, process is, is inherently political. Uh, in, in that you are trying to convince, you know, nuclear weapons states not to be, you know, to, to not have, to, to disarm effectively. And many nuclear weapons states, for example, boycotted the, um, Nobel Peace Prize ceremony this past weekend. So how are you not running against your, you know, mandate to be neutral and impartial when you are also actively kind of doing Politics and, and high politics in areas that um, certain governments, powerful governments, might have an interest in in uh, undermining your work.
1: Yeah, well, it's a very good question. I think we we treat an issue like that. We, all our you know 150 years we've been engaged in weapons, we, you know, weapons development. What is a um, a fair and appropriate and proportionate and discriminate weapon? So we've always been engaged in um, treaties and um, rules and laws around weaponry. And of course we approach nuclear weapons um, through Geneva Conventions International Humanitarian Law, um, which you know rules against the deliberate targeting of civilians, which encourages distinction between military and civilian populations, and which dis- um, urges the principle of proportionality in the use of armed force, so we look at nuclear weapons through the um, legal lens of international humanitarian law, and we find them to be an indiscriminate weapon, which in a sense breach the Geneva Conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's how we treat them, and it's very obvious to us that you know we um, we are in disagreement with um, several states on this question. They tell us what they think, and we tell them what we think. And again, the other thing we haven't really talked about is that the ICRC's preferred method of dialogue is is always confidential. So we will always be having confidential dialogues with states, and they will be writing to us, and we'll be writing back and talking to them about an issue like nuclear weapons. And they'll make their position very clear to us, the states that disagree with that treaty. Um, and, and we will put our position too.
0: Well, I, can I ask you um... – Could you sort of tell me a story or cite an example of the ways in which your unique status at the UN as a a permanent observer has led to any sort of discrete policy outcomes that that you consider sort of a a, a key victory? Like being in the room has has sort of enabled, you know, like a certain line inserted in a treaty or some sort of outcome.
1: Well, I think we often get, you know, many um lines inserted in treaties. We're often asked by states to advise them on the phrasing and proper um legal um description and phrasing of, of resolutions they're trying to do. So a lot of the resolutions you see emerging from the Security Council, um, our legal team here in New York will will have given their advice to those drafting, whether it's the president of the Security Council at that month or others drafting resolutions. So, I mean, I can't give you specific verbatim examples, but we're doing that um, all the time. I think we also often join um, to bring issues to the UN. So if we think about attacks against healthcare, which have become a really um, almost permanent challenge in armed conflicts today where um, many states and armed groups are attacking healthcare um, when they shouldn't. We've been part of a movement of states and others and advising those states that have brought resolutions to um, emphasize the prohibition of attacks against healthcare, healthcare facilities, ambulances and staff and patients. So we can also um, advise states on how they bring whole issues to, to the UN as well.
0: Um, can you uh, help clarify for, for listeners? Um, Cause I think there is, is some confusion uh, about the relationship between the ICRC, the committee and some of like the national um, organizations, like say the American red cross. So for example, yeah. you know, the American red cross has gotten into some trouble here in the United States recently for not uh, for r- reports suggesting that they haven't been, you know, careful stewards of donor dollars. Yeah. Um, but, my understanding is that's like totally and completely separate from what you do and, and your entity.
1: Well, we're all part of something, what we call the same movement. So we are all part of the um, International Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. And there are three components to that movement. So there's the original International Committee, the Red Cross, who who I'm with, who work on armed conflict and war. And there is then all the national societies like the American Red Cross. And then there's the International Federation of Red Cross, Red Crescent Organizations, which is the umbrella group and which um, coordinates the movement's work on natural disasters in the way that we coordinate the movement's work on armed conflict. Now, national societies are set up um, as national auxiliaries to government. So they are national humanitarian auxiliaries to government. So they have a close relationship to their government as, if you like, an independent, impartial humanitarian surge capacity to um, their government. So they are a national organisation, but they are part of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. And we meet every two years as as the movement, really, we meet and we met in Turkey earlier this year, all the um, National Red Cross, Red Crescent Societies, plus the ICRC, plus the Federation. And we meet and make humanitarian policy there. And we pass humanitarian resolutions, a bit like, you know, the UN would or any other regional organization. And then every four years, we meet with um, the ICRC, the Federation, all national Red Cross, Red Crescent societies, and all states who are high-contracting parties to the Geneva Conventions. So every four years, the movement meets with the high-contracting parties, um, the states, you know, like the U.S., like others. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so another um, issue that has come up in, um, in discussions about the, the ICRC, about the, the movement more broadly, is the role of the Syria Red Crescent um, again, as, as you described, I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a body that necessarily has to have a relationship with the government of Syria. Uh, so it does receive again, some, some donor dollars, I think, including from, from the UN and, and other agencies to do humanitarian work on the ground, but its relationship with the government causes, you know, some controversy to erupt around that. What's the, like the best heuristic to approach that sort of, I think it's a profound moral question, like, like what, to what extent, you know, should one sort of support, say, the Syria Red Crescent in that situation?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll answer that question, but I'm going to start by saying that the Syrian Arab Red Crescent has um, led itself through the most extraordinary transformation in the, you know, six or seven years of the Syrian war. It was, you know, a relatively small um, Red Crescent Society doing first aid and you know a few other things before the war and it has now become a major humanitarian organization um, responding to the needs of millions of people every year and doing so incredibly courageously so that it's you know seventy over seventy of its volunteers have been killed in action. Um, you know, as frontline humanitarian workers since the war has started. So they're an extraordinary organization. But your question about the sort of politics of that relationship is an important one. And it's not a simple one, as you suggest, because um, the Syrian government insists that everyone works through the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, um, who are charged with coordinating humanitarian aid. Now, we would always work through a national society. So in South Sudan, we work with the South Sudan Red Cross, in Mali with the Mali Red Crescent. And in Syria, we would naturally work with the Syrian Arab Red Crescent. And they do have to um, walk a line between their government which seeks to influence them, and the humanitarian needs of people all over Syria. And humanitarian action is never simple. In an armed conflict, all warring parties will want to control aid as much as they can. And that is the challenge of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement, to um, create and negotiate and argue um, and deliver as much neutral, impartial humanitarian action as we can.
0: Uh, on a, a sort of a totally separate note, or maybe it's not, not so separate, does the ICRC still facilitate facilitate prisoner exchanges?
1: Yes, it does. It's one of the most um, important things we do. We, we also have a recognized and mandated role as a neutral intermediary. So we are often um, trusted and invited by both parties to a conflict to act as a neutral intermediary. So for example, we will often um, organize and deliver the exchange of prisoners between two warring sides. We will also tragically um, organize and be trusted to hand over um, the remains and dead bodies of soldiers from each side. So What's a, we like a recent
0: example of, of you guys doing that? Well,
1: if I give you the most recent example, we were the neutral intermediary in the um, release and exchange of some of the young women um, abducted in northern Nigeria by Boko Haram. So, you know, a deal was done, brokered by the Swiss on that occasion, and um, all parties agreed that the people they would trust to actually move the girls and other prisoners in exchange was would be the ICRC. So that's what we did. And actually, very movingly, at the moment, um, we're doing a similar sort of thing from a, a war you know more than 30 years ago, because we are working with um, the Argentinians and the British as well to um, identify the bodies from that conflict um, in the mm-hmm. Falklands and to finally inform. Um, their families of those missing soldiers, that their, you know, sons are there, and find a way. I hope to um, return the bodies or to find a safe place for them where families can um, visit them. So, so finally, um, looking forward
0: to 2018, what are some of your top priorities from the humanitarian diplomacy uh, uh, object from your object from your uh, humanitarian diplomacy objectives? <laughs>
1: Well, we always have as our first and um, non-negotiable objective every year is to affirm international humanitarian law, to get increasing respect for the Geneva Conventions so that the conduct of hostilities um, is much more in line with law and better for all people. So we always have that as our top-line priority, and we'll go on negotiating with states and um, on the ground, um, near battle areas, and in places like the UN in New York and others to try and increase respect for the Geneva Conventions on the ground. But we also will um, focus hard on people who are displaced you know, there are still you know, over 40 million people who are forcibly displaced in armed conflict. We have to get greater international attention, not just on migrants in the world today who are crossing borders and refugees, but on people who are displaced within their own countries in places like Somalia and other places where displacement continues to rise. And we're also going to um, continue to focus hard on missing people, um, so many people, go missing in armed conflict. And we are expecting an increasing new big wave of missing people from the conflicts in the Middle East as perhaps they stabilize a bit. And hopefully as peace returns to Iraq and even parts of Syria, we expect more and more people to come forward and say, I have no idea where my brother is, my sister is, my father is, my mother is, my wife, my husband. And we've always had, ever since our founding days um, by Henri Dunant, we've had a particular and special role to try and help families find missing relatives. Uh, Well, Hugo, thank
0: you so much for your time and, and for these insights. Thank
1: you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Very interesting. I actually find that historic uh, stuff about how uh, the ICRC helped shape the Geneva Conventions uh, to be really interesting. And uh, I'm sure there are mountains of academic uh, literature on, on that very topic. But really interesting stuff. Loved learning that they're still doing that kind of basic uh Prisoner exchange and and other kind of work that they were known for 150 years ago to this day. All right, we'll see you later. Bye.
1: The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.